Chapter 4 of War Stories for My Grandchildren. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Hawkins. War Stories for My Grandchildren by John Watson Foster, Section 5. The Battle of Shiloh, Part 1. We were much pleased to turn our backs upon Fort Donelson as the movement gave promise of an advance still farther into the South. In my letter dated Fort Henry, March 7, I write, We left Donelson on the 5th. The roads were terribly muddy, and it took us two days to get here, about 12 miles. Besides, the weather was quite cold and snowing, being one of the most blustery days of March, making the march a most uncomfortable one. But we arrived here in pretty good season yesterday evening, and were fortunate to get into the same cabins we occupied when here before. The troops here are all embarking on steamboats, and it is understood that we are to go up the Tennessee River, how far we don't know, but hope through to Florence, Alabama. It is said, it is said, reported, understood, they say, are all unofficial terms you must understand, that none of the boats will leave till all of the regiments are embarked and that the whole fleet will move together. The river is very high, and on account of black water, we can't get nearer than 400 yards of the boats. The 24th Indiana went up the river this morning to find a convenient place to embark. We may have to go up there also to get aboard. Just as we were marching through the cold and snow last night, I met Uncle Tom going down to the boat on his way home. He told me he had resigned, had caught a severe cold, and had a bad cough. I think he has taken the best course, as his health can hardly stand the exposure. I refer here to my mother's youngest brother, Captain Thomas Johnson, whose case was that of many other officers in our army. He had been suffering for some years with tuberculosis, and would have not been able to pass the physical examination to which the soldiers in the ranks were subjected, but the examination of the officers was less strict. He was not fitted for the service and ought not have entered it but his zeal to serve his country in the time of its sore trial was so great that he could not be persuaded to stay at home. As we expected, he broke down within a year of his enlistment. We shall see that he was not content to remain inactive at home after he was relieved of his attack of cold, and in less than six months he obtained an appointment in one of the new regiments, only to be again sent home before another year of campaigning was over. As anticipated, the regiment was the next day ordered to go six miles up the river to get a convenient place of embarkation. The day following was spent in camp. As I listened to our chaplain in his Sunday service today, how I wish I could have enjoyed our own church service at home with my wife. As I walked out through the woods this pleasant spring evening with Colonel Morgan, I could not help thinking of the times we enjoyed together in our many evening walks. I have been reading today the life of General Havelock, the noble Christian soldier. I was very much interested in the affectionate and touching letters he wrote his wife and children. They made me think of my absent ones. Adjutant has resigned, and he wants to go home immediately. Before his resignation can go to St. Louis, be accepted and returned. He has applied for a leave of absence. If he gets it, I will send this letter by him. He puts his resignation on the ground of ill health, but the young man is mistaken. A look at his fat jaws and healthy appearance will tell a different tale. He is in as good as health as I am. The trouble with him is his homesickness from love. 
We are out of range of regular mails, and he can't get letters from his lady love often. He can't endure the situation. We tried to talk him out of it, but he insists. He has at the best taken a bad time to resign, just on the eve of an important expedition against the enemy. I told him last night that no one wanted to be at home more than I did, and that if I could get out of service honorably in view of my duty, I would do so. But this I could not do. He can draw his own inference. I think the young man is making a mistake personally. Here he is drawing a good salary, and at home he can do nothing, even if he wasn't too lazy. The next letter was written on board a steamboat lying at the town of Savannah, Tennessee, dated the 12th. Here we are away down on the southern border of Tennessee, only a few miles from Alabama and Mississippi, away down in Dixie. We went on board the steamboats day before yesterday. The 10th, four companies on the Uncle Sam and six companies on the Conewaga, the latter under my command. We have had a very pleasant trip up the river, being comfortably situated on the boat and plenty of good eating. The Tennessee is a quite pretty river, but not very thickly settled immediately on its banks. At the farmhouses, the people were collected in little groups, with waving handkerchiefs by the women and frequent cheers for the Union. It was a new sight for the inhabitants, such an immense fleet of boats, black with troops, and bristling with cannon and munitions of war. The boats are all lying up here, most of them having arrived this morning, the river full of them on both sides. It is stated by officers who ought to know that we now have 70 steamers in the fleet and that 10 more are on the way. Remember me to Mr. McCrayer and family. Tell him I am afraid we are persecuting our old school, Southside Presbyterian Brethren, as they have called their General Assembly to meet in Memphis in May. I fear we shall get in the way of some of them and scare them away. There is a set of chessmen on the boat, and I have had several pleasant games, the first for a long time. How I would like to take a game with my dear wife as of old. Large numbers of Union men are coming in both to enlist and for refuge and protection. Some of them came more than a hundred miles and had to travel at night, fleeing from the persecutions and cruelties of the rebels. Writing on the 16th, I report, We are still lying at Savannah. More steamers with troops have arrived, so that now we have about 90 boats, and I estimate about 60,000 soldiers. We are getting tired of staying on the boat, but it has been raining most of the time, and therefore our quarters are better than they would be ashore. The river has again risen and flooded over the banks. Two days later, I write, we are still lying along the shore on our boats, awaiting orders, rather impatiently too, the eighth day aboard. Yesterday we left Savannah and came a few miles up to a farm where we found a good landing. We turned our men out on the shore to enjoy the exercise and fresh air. It was a most beautiful day, while we had the boat thoroughly cleaned. The men had been kept cooped up on the boats for so long they enjoyed the day very much. We have a rumor of the taking of New Orleans by our forces from the Gulf, but can hardly credit it. It will be glorious news, if true, and a rapid step toward the end of the rebellion. I have no news, mostly right to let you know I am in the best of health and in safety. At my last letter, dated in camp at Pittsburgh Landing, gives account of our having left the boats. We are now in camp about a mile from the river in a pleasant forest. How long we are to remain here we do not know, but as tomorrow is Sunday we may get our marching orders then. We are ordered to keep in readiness to march at one hour's notice. We are ordered to take with us in each company wagon seven days' rations of provisions and five days' rations of grain for horses, besides three days' rations in each man's haversack, making ten days' rations. As the roads are now, we won't be able to travel very fast. 
Our force has been increasing every day by the arrival of new regiments. How large our army is, I do not know, but the woods are perfectly alive with men. Regiments of tents are in every direction and extending for miles around. We have no doubt of our successful progress, whether it is to march upon Memphis or farther down south into the heart of Dixie. You need have no fear for my personal safety and for the success of our army. We are only hoping we shall be sent by rapid marches against Memphis, and when we get there you can come down and pay me another visit if I cannot get off home for a few days. March 24, I wrote. I have not heard from you for two weeks, but today I have three letters from you and one from Father, and I can assure you your good dear letters are most acceptable. I think of you and our dear little one so much and long for the time speedily to come when I can be with you again. I trust and believe that God is so ordering events that the time is not far removed. In the meantime, we will hope and pray and be patient. You need not be the least troubled about me. I am in perfect health, and General Buell with more than 100,000 men is making a junction with us, so that our combined army of 200,000 has only to move to sweep every vestige of opposition out of the way. I don't think the enemy will make a stand before us at all. The foregoing illustrates how little the subordinate officers know of an army's strength or its future. It is a common error to make exaggerated estimates of an army. The figures given above place the numbers of joint armies of Grant and Buell at more than double their actual strength. And so far from sweeping the enemy before them, within two weeks from the writing of this letter, Grant's gallant army was attacked in its own camp and barely escaped being swept into the Tennessee River. I wrote on the 27th, I have been detailed by General Horbett as a judge advocate of a general court-martial and am kept very busy with its duties. That's what I get for being a lawyer. A letter on March 31 has the following. We had yesterday our monthly regimental inspection, and in the afternoon we had a grand review of the division by General Horbett. In both these exercises it became necessary for me to command the regiment. The division review was very fine, the finest we have seen since we have been in the service. There are 12 regiments with artillery and cavalry. Our regiment was highly commended by the general. It has been a week since I have had a letter from you. Probably you sent a letter by Schoenfeld, the sutler, but if you did it has not come, neither has Schoenfeld. He started up the Tennessee River with his stores, among which was some whiskey. The troops on the boat discovered the whiskey, broke it open, and got into a general drunk. The consequence was he was sent back to Paducah with all his stores. That's what you get for having your letter in company with whiskey. It reminds me that if you have a chance, I would be very glad if you would send me a pint bottle of the best quality of pure brandy. The worst I have to fear in the army is diarrhea, on account of bad water, especially in the warm weather. St. Paul was sensible when he recommended a little wine for the stomach's sake. My little wife won't fear I am going to be a drunkard. Some of the minor trials of a soldier's life are recorded in my letter of the third. I have not told you that when we left the boats here, old Bill, our negro crook, left us. I caught him selling whiskey to the soldiers contrary to orders, and confiscated his whiskey, with a sharp lecture which he took so seriously as to quit us without notice. Surgeon Walker has loaned us his boy Frank, and he has been doing the cooking under my superintendence, and we haven't been living so bad either. Frank and I get up some first-rate meals. I do the plain cooking, such as frying potatoes and meat, making hash, cooking rice, beans, hominy, etc., 
while Frank makes the pies, biscuits, etc. We are not in danger of starving while Frank and I have charge of matters. We used up the last can of fruits tonight for supper of the fine lot you and mother sent us. I can assure you we relished them greatly. They come in a very good place out here in the woods where our mess can't buy anything and have to depend on the commissary supplies for all our eatables. Sconeville is coming back to the regiment again, but you home folks must not rob yourselves of fruits, preserves, apple butter, ketchup, etc. on our account. April 2, I write. I see by the newspaper that the Great Waterloo is to take place up here in the vicinity of Corinth. Well, it hasn't taken place yet, and you can rest yourself in the assurance that it will hardly take place for some time to come. We are resting quietly in camp, except that we may have our daily drills and parades and an occasional review. Today, Major General Grant reviewed our entire division. The troops looked very well. In a letter dated the next day, the 3rd, I write, The weather is very pleasant now. The trees are coming out in full bloom. I took a long ride out in the country today, went as far as it was safe to go this side of the rebels. The woods are full of wild flowers. I got quite a bouquet which I would love to have presented to my wife, but she is not here to get it. Maybe I may enclose you some of the violets I have among them. And yet, notwithstanding the quietness and confidence prevailing in the army encamped at Pittsburgh Landing, as indicated in these extracts from my letters, on the 2nd of April, the entire Confederate army under General A.S. Johnston had marched from Corinth, and on the 3rd, the day I took my long ride into the country, it was within striking distance of our camp, designing to make its united attack on Grant's army on the 5th. Being unexpectedly delayed one day, the rebel onslaught broke upon our lines at daybreak on Sunday the 6th. Of the terrible two days battle which ensued, I was able the night of the second day to write to my father a pretty full account. Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee, April 7, 1862. Dear Father, tired, worn out, almost exhausted, I have just brought the remnant of the noble 25th Indiana back into our old camp from the front of the hardest fought, most strongly contested, and bloodiest battlefield upon the American continent. But I cannot lie down without first preparing a short account of it, to assure you of my own personal safety, the gallant conduct of our regiment, and the glorious triumph of our arms. A terrible conflict of two full days of continuous fighting has this evening left us in possession of the field which was at one time almost lost. Yesterday, Sunday morning, about 6.30 o'clock, just after we had finished breakfast, we were attracted by a continuous roar of musketry, with occasional discharges of artillery on our extreme left near the river. In a few minutes we were in line of battle, and moving forward to the attack. We had hardly left the camp before we saw the roads full of our flying men, and all along the route for the two miles we passed over were strewn guns, knapsacks, and blankets, and we found, to our dismay, that our front had been completely surprised, one whole division scattered and retreating in utter confusion, and the enemy in force already a mile within our camps. We were drawn up in line of battle, our brigade under command of Colonel Veach, in a skirt of timber bordering a large field, on the outer edge of which our troops were engaging the enemy. But the enemy pressed on an overwhelming force, and just as the troops in the front of us began to waver, we discovered that the enemy had flanked us on the right and was rapidly advancing in what force we knew not, but the woods were perfectly swarming, to attack our brigade on the right and rear. 
so it became necessary for us to change our front to the rear to meet them. The 15th Illinois was on the right, the 14th Illinois on the center, and the 25th Indiana on the left. The other regiment, the 46th Illinois, by the rapid flanking of the enemy, becoming detached from the brigade, was not with us again during the whole action. This brought the first fire upon the 14th Illinois, which stood it nobly, but was soon overpowered, likewise the 14th. In the meantime, the troops in front and on the left were completely rooted by the enemy and came pell-mell right through our lines, causing some little confusion, and hardly had they passed through to the rear before the enemy were upon us, and here the fire of musketry was most terrible. Our men tried to stand up to it, but everything was breaking to pieces all around us, and it was more than we can do, short of annihilation. We poured in a few well-directed volleys and reluctantly left the field, many of our men firing as they fell back. The loss here was very heavy. All of the field officers of the 25th Illinois were killed instantly, and many commissioned officers. Two of our lieutenants were killed and three wounded, and one of our captains is either killed or a prisoner. We will make thorough search for him on the field in the morning. We left dead on this field 15 men killed almost instantly on the first fire, and a large number wounded. At the first fire, Lieutenant Colonel Morgan was wounded in the leg, not seriously, and was immediately carried off the field. From this time I led the regiment in person. I did all I could do to make the men contest the ground firmly as they fell back, and on the first favorable ground, about 100 yards from the first line of battle, I planted the colors and mounted a fallen tree, and waving my hat with all my might, I cheered and called upon the men to rally on the flag, never to desert their colors. All of the left wing responded to my call most nobly, and rallied with considerable alacrity under a most galling and dangerous fire. I did not see Colonel Morgan fall, and supposed he had charge of the right wing. But the various captains collected a large number of their men, and as soon as I got under cover of the regiments on the left and rear, they brought up their men and joined me, and I thus still had quite a battalion, notwithstanding the killed and number wounded, and the straying or lost ones. The men who came to me at this time had been tried in the furnace, and were true men, and during all the trying scenes of the rest of the day and of today, they never faltered in obeying my commands, and did most bravely. As soon as our brigade was collected, Colonel Veach moved us over to the right to support General McClellan's division, which was being very hard pressed by the enemy, said to be commanded by Beauregard. The left, so our prisoners report, was commanded by Bragg, and the center by Johnston. They also report that the column that attacked our brigade in the morning, of which I have just spoken, numbers 12,000 under Bragg, and that the whole force was near 100,000, but we do not know, only that it was very large, sufficiently so to attack the entire line of our extensive camp and heavy force. In the afternoon, our pickets reported the enemy advancing against us, on the left of General McClellan. As soon as we had drawn them well up by our picket skirmish under Captain Rhinelander, the 14th Illinois flanked them and was just beginning to pour upon them a heavy fire, while we were moving up to the assistance of the 14th in fine style, when the whole mass of our left, which had for five or six hours been steadily and stubbornly contesting the victorious advance of the enemy in that direction, gave way in all directions, about half past three, and came sweeping by us in utter and total confusion. Cavalry, ambulances, artillery, and thousands of infantry, all in one mass, while the enemy were following closely in pursuit, at the same time throwing grape, 
canister, shells thick and fast among them. It was a time of great excitement and dismay. It appeared that all was lost, but I was unwilling to throw a regiment into the flying mass, only to be trampled to pieces and thoroughly disorganized and broken. So I held them back in the wash on the side of the road until the mass of the route had passed. When I put my men in the rear of the retreat, and by this means fell into heavy cross-fire of the enemy, but I preferred that to being crushed to pieces by our own army. Here we lost a number of our men killed, and many wounded. Among those who fell wounded badly in the leg was Sergeant Major William Jones, who had stood right by me fearlessly through the whole day. This route decided that day's work. We were driven back nearly to the river landing, but the enemy kept pressing us in all the time and if at this time they made a bold and united charge all along their line we would have been totally and utterly rooted but a half hour's apparent cessation of our heavy firing gave our scattered forces time to rally while the first two regiments of buell's long expected advance took position on the hill in the rear and our forces fell back and formed with them near the landing for a final stand about five o'clock in the evening the enemy made a heavy charge and attempted to carry this position the contest was most terrible. The roar of musketry was one continuous peal for near half an hour. All that saved us was two heavy siege pieces on the hill and the firmness of our men on this last stand. Night closed in on us, with almost the whole of our extensive camps in the hands of the enemy. It was a gloomy night for us all, and to add to our discomforts, we had a heavy rain with no shelter. But we had saved enough ground to make a good stand upon and during the night 20,000 fresh troops from Buell's army were transported across the river, and Lew Wallace moved up his division from below on our right. This morning at dawn of day began one of the grandest and most terrific battles ever fought. Buell moved forward on the left and center, and Wallace on the right, with their fresh troops, while Grant's army steadily followed them up and held the ground firmly as it was gained. From early in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon, the roar of musketry and artillery was one of almost continuous thunder. It was grand beyond description. I have not time to tell you of it in this letter, and you will have it fully described in the newspapers. The enemy fought with great desperation and steadiness, but Wallace continued to press them on the right, driving them to the left, and Buell pressing them on the left, driving them to the right, until they were getting completely outflanked, when at three o'clock our brigade was ordered up to the front and center and directed to charge the retreating enemy. But they traveled too fast for us. Nothing but cavalry could reach them. We remained on the outpost till evening, and then came in to get a good night's sleep in the tents of our own camp after the fatigues of a two days steady fight. The night is terribly disagreeable, rainy and chilly and tens of thousands of troops are sleeping on the bare ground with no covering, just as we did last night. Indiana has borne an honorable part in the great battle. I know that the 9th, the 11th, 25th, 31st, 32nd, 44th, and 57th regiments were engaged, and I think the 23rd and 24th with several others, I have no doubt. Though I have been too busy on the field to know much of it, have not even had time to see Colonel Morgan or our wounded officers and men. The 42nd was busy here today, but I hardly think it was in the fight, though it may have been. Thompson's battery is said to have done noble work. Alec, brother of the rider, was busy with the trains and baggage. The enemy came right up to our tents. The camp was shelled. He had to move wagons and baggage to the landing. Did his duty well, 
but we are back again tonight. I tried in this terrible conflict to do my duty well, and I am willing to leave to my officers and men the judgment. I forgot to mention Colonel Veach. He acted with great coolness and courage, always with his brigade in the thickest of the fight. He had two horses shot under him, but escaped unharmed. I have written this hurried letter to you for the family, not the public. My deliverance was almost miraculous, and I am grateful for it. End of section 5